Adam. Welcome to Idol Weekend. I'm Danielle Riendo, and I'm here with my co-host Rob Zachney on the newest podcast from Idol Thumbs. Today, we're also joined by special guest Austin Walker of Giant Bomb. Welcome, Austin. Thank you so much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. We are very happy to have you on, especially for this topic. So this weekend, we are dreaming of the 90s. So get your leather vest ready, Zero Cool, because we're going to talk about how hackers and other great futuristic films of the grunge era have basically prepared us to live in our current cyberpunk dystopia and how we keep seeing these same sort of themes and icons and motifs in games now, even so far removed from those sort of glory days of the 90s. So I've been playing a ton of Super Hot lately, which is, if you're unfamiliar, it's a very sort of minimalist cyberpunk-ish game where you, it's a, it's a first person shooter and time only moves when you move and sort of Mm. looking is included in that. It's very, very stylish. It was made actually as part of a, originally as part of a game jam. They did a Kickstarter. It's actually coming out very soon. Actually, it's out this weekend, in fact. So it's out (laughs) right now. And the theme of it, you know, the actual sort of story of it has to do with, you know, I won't, I won't go into any great detail here, but it goes into a lot of the, the sort of meat that hackers, uh, you know, introduced to us. It's all about, you know, damn the men and the establishment and, and, you know, the games and is, is not what it seems and so on and so forth. It's very, very sort of classic cyberpunk kind of uh, material. So it got me thinking about all of this. And Austin, I know you are a big fan of hackers and sort of the, the grunge era as well. So I don't know if you, if you have something to, to sort of start us out with here. It's so interesting to see how some of these themes and like specifically the themes of uh, kind of technology, oppression, uh, revolt, and youth culture intermingle in any given time period uh, in yeah. mass media, whether that is like it, the birth of, of cyberpunk in, in, you know, short fiction uh, or the, the birth of cyberpunk on screen in films like Blade Runner or in the nineties, the shift towards not just like youth culture in this kind of abstract punky way, but like, Oh no, these are movies about teens or movies about young adults who are like, out to overthrow whatever the thing is that's that's keeping them in the margins um and to do it by having a greater access to the the knowledge necessary to control technological systems um and that's not going anywhere i think maybe because a lot of those themes still resonate today with the rise of of social media with the rise of you know mobile technologies um that is still whether or not it's true that those things can help social movements or or or, or fuel social movements of course they can help but like whether or not those can be the, the pure catalysts of those things that story is at least being told again and again and again and it's often told such that like oh if you're young you understand technology and that gives you power that the old geezers don't have. <laughs> okay, so I want to pin this down a little bit because I get uneasy when I totally know what some like what you're talking about when when we're discussing like '90s uh, like uh, techno fantasies and, mm-hmm. and, and cyberpunk movies. Like they all do have a vibe, a really specific vibe. But I'm sort of having a hard time putting my finger on why I can pick a 90s, like, sci-fi movie, uh, like, out of a lineup instantly, um, as opposed <laughs> to other eras of, of sci-fi. And, like, and, and, like, 
you know, clothes and hairstyles, I don't think are actually the tell, but. Because, yeah. in other words, you could pick Johnny Mnemonic out and Hackers out as both being 90s, despite the fact that they actually don't have the same wardrobes. Right. Yeah, there's something about the 90s that we all sort of romanticize, you know, and I, I don't think we're necessarily 100% wrong to do that. It was kind of an era of a lot of change and a lot of sort of progressive values and a lot of, you know earnestness you know i always sort of associate it with with almost like the sort of riot girl movement as well as all of this even though they were happening around the same time and they weren't necessarily about the same topics but it there's just this absolutely earnest feeling about those kind of movies and that kind of music and that sort of youth culture that was just it's it's still appealing to me even though it's it's you know 20 years ago and i was only i was very young at the time too young for most of it you know to really resonate i was 10 11 years old uh when a lot of these things were coming out but later on as i grew up i was like this stuff was way better than than what's coming out for kids <laughs> my age now basically you know all during college that was sort of my my whole deal so yeah i i, I feel like it's just earnest just like absolute like yeah we're gonna do the cool thing we're gonna do the right thing man like this just is there any chance that that, that earnest that that earnestness was just naivete specifically at or, or maybe not even just naivete but like reflected a more naive version of the internet, for instance. Oh, of course. That, like, yeah. So, yeah, like, specifically what I have in mind here is that that moment of the internet in the early 90s was such that it had not been kind of cordoned off and closed down in the ways that it has since been. Yeah. Um, and and knowledge of that sphere did give you access, even non-hacker knowledge, right? Like, just, like, yeah. basic knowledge of communicating with someone across the country, of uh, being able to do some some uh, kind of preliminary research, like, stuff like that really was, or, or at the very least, it felt like it had the potential to be um, not just life-changing in the kind of local personal sense, uh, and not just world-changing in the kind of, like, it is going to make some people super rich sense, but like world changing in the like, oh, the basic structures of our society could be shifted around because a few smart people understand this system a little bit differently than the, than the other people. Well, and, and so much of that I think is, is and this, this I think is sort of where it begins to tie into uh, the games of that era and basically games that have, have come out since then, uh, is that so much of this seems to be about the sense of the internet as an invention that can give us some sort of like physical physical transcendence yeah. uh, that, you know, if you, if you look at a lot of those, those movies that are specifically about sort of the, the birth of the internet or, or look at books that, that were about it. So like, you know, your, your, your neuromancers, your, your snow crashes, or even something that's kind of trashy, like the yeah. net. Right. Uh, there is this kind of like, yes, it is, it is a naive wonderment that suddenly you can be literally anywhere and be almost anyone. Mm -hmm. With a group of people anywhere else in the world. And that idea sort of get like people take that idea and, and then they run with it, right? This idea that, well, what if like suddenly like you can access any piece of information uh, that you want. You can, you can access any group of people uh, you want anywhere in the world. Well, what if you could also do more than that, right? Where if, if you know, if you could, if you could somehow like, experience that on a, a a physical level where like through the power of technology uh and specifically the internet uh your body is no longer your limitation uh it's you know it's your mind right yeah. it's funny because when i think about modern uh games that use this narrative or this device they often fall into this to to that 
that trap in a sense of like, or not that trap, but they fail to live up to that, that notion where like you think about something like watchdogs where I know Rob, you and I recently talked about this on three moves ahead <laughs> that like, Oh, it really, is this all this technology can do? It lets us change traffic lights and like bring up like traffic cones. It lets us, you know, hack into people's bank accounts. That's the limits of what the, the transhumanist movement is. Um, that's strange. Um, but at the same time, the thing that makes the nineties interesting for me is that the moment at which that, promise was packaged and sold to us in a movie as <laughs> earnest as hackers and as you know i'm not saying it's uncritical all said but it certainly isn't very reflective necessarily on on some of the more nuanced elements because it's a fun popcorn flick uh and i love it but but like when the second a company realized they could package up that fantasy and sell it to us instead of it just being a kind of niche thing that rang true for a certain audience it was in that transitional moment to where it would become this hollowed out, less revolutionary uh, kind of vision of of techno utopianism or whatever. Uh, before we go further with this, I just I just want to ask real quickly because I think the net is maybe a slightly culty movie for a lot of people. I actually have like not the net uh, hackers hackers uh, is, hackers. Is a movie yes. that a lot of people haven't seen the net is the net is also a movie a lot of people haven't. Yeah, seen, I was gonna to say I have not seen the net actually, so okay. I've. Uh, I mean yeah. the, <laughs> that category. So well, the the net is kind of the the boomer uh, reverse of, of that coin, right? The yeah. net mm. is a Sandra Bullock movie about oh my goodness, these kids are spending way too much time on their computers and they don't know what's real <laughs> and what's not. And so the net is one part like wonderment that like holy holy hell, like yeah. you're, you're telling me that you can do all this stuff on a computer, and the other half of it is. Oh, but you see, real life is meant to be lived. And if you spend too much time on the internet, the hackers are going to get you. Uh, and they're going to destroy your yeah. life. Yeah. Whereas hackers, like, is in, like, does its best to blur that line constantly and say, like, no, man, like, if you're into computers, you're also into, like, real physical stuff, like going to an arcade and, and yes. doing skateboard tricks there, or, like, swimming in a pool with, like, the, your, your high school sweetheart, oh. like, <laughs> while you, while you simultaneously activate hacks that turn a nearby, like, uh, building into signage to declare yes. your love. Like, it's so cheesy, but, but very good at blurring that line between the physical and the virtual. Like, that's, it's, it's big thing is actually, no, there isn't a division between the physical and the virtual and in fact we can get away from our physical bondage by in engaging with the virtual space that where we can be more powerful than just regular teenagers you can live your fullest life if yeah. you are both engaging your mind in this amazing new uh, you know brave new world and also you can have totally hot sex with angelina jolie totally and that might be the first movie that i was really like so i was 10 when that movie came out and i'm thinking <laughs> yeah. about it now or it's like the not the first time i thought like oh that this is a sexy person that i'm looking yeah. at but it was the it's the first time that i felt like there is something sexy happening here not yes. just like in the sex scenes not just like in the makeout scenes not just in the pool but in general the whole like the atmosphere, like the air of that movie is sexy or was sexy to 10-year-old Austin at least. No, uh, I, I totally agree. I mean, it's it's sexy to 32-year-old Danielle still, like even <laughs> even with the cheesiness of, of, you know, time gone on and even with the tropes of like a teen movie in the 90s and of course everybody was at least 25, you know, the whole, right, right. In actuality, <laughs> the whole right. deal. Yeah. I, I Do mean, you it, think, do you think anything that's been inspired by, by movies and like Hackers – capture that sexiness oh it's very difficult i you know it's actually it, it's so much of that era that it that it almost feels difficult to completely capture that but i have seen 
there's almost to me, and this is actually what I was going to say before, there's almost sort of like, at least for me, and this may not be everybody else's experience with it, but it seemed like there was sort of a queer sensibility about this world as well. Not necessarily just in hackers, but also, you know, Rob, what you were saying earlier about like, you know, you can sort of transcend your body or you can, you know, Mm -hmm. have a different identity. And the 90s were really sort of when uh, LGBT rights were starting to seriously get off uh, get off the ground in a lot of ways. 1999 was the first time civil unions were recognized in right. in America, basically, in, in Vermont, actually. And so we were just kind of starting to get all this stuff. And baby Dyke Danielle was really just sort of starting to figure some of this stuff out as well. And so for me, a lot of this, a lot of the earnestness felt like a sort of queer sensibility to me. And that's part of what made it kind of special. And this is like the only genre that, you know, I've always felt more at home in science fiction for this reason, that there's Mm -hmm. just more space for different identities. You know, women can be powerful. Women don't have to be the wife who stays at home while the knight goes out and having adventures and fighting. And, you know, Game of Thrones maybe is doing a little bit about that. But, you know, in terms of the nerd divide between sci-fi and fantasy, I always fell on the sci-fi line because it was like, well, there's a place for me. In some right. of these universes, there's a place there, for people like me here, and that's awesome. You there know? literally is in Hackers, which which has some queer characters. It does, and, yeah. And doesn't frame them. I mean, I guess my memory could be faulty here, but it doesn't frame them as as you know jokes. It doesn't frame them as. But it also, it, it like I don't want to limit its queerness to just its representation of yeah. of queer characters. Yeah. You're you're also right to say that it is about like a larger notion of queering the body, queering spaces, mixing things up in a lot of ways. You know the the old Old roles are not necessarily what you need in in your cool new life, basically. <laughs> right. I want to propose an axis by which we can judge things that that were inspired by 1990s internet thrillers and and <laughs> you know post cyberpunk uh, films. So on yes, one on one on one axis, there's this like there's the there's the or maybe it's not multi axis. I, I don't know what the, what the, I don't know what this looks like spatially yet. But so there's <laughs> hackers, which is this kind of like naive and hopeful and sexy and young vision of what technology can do for us. Um, and, and is, is fundamentally, uh, deeply skeptical of organiz, of, of any sort of organization, especially large government, especially big corporations and, yeah. and the kind of, um, the kind of arrangement thereof and, and the agreements that go between them. And it thinks that technology can be the solution for that. Then there's, there's things like the net, which are, I think, fundamentally cynical and scared of what technology can do. Um, and I don't know that the net really has a coherent position on, <laughs> what an independent person is supposed to do to prevent that stuff from happening. It it just seemed it's been again a while since I've seen the net, but Rob, you correct me if I'm wrong, but like there isn't anyone to really turn to in that scenario. No. And then there's strange days. Oh, oh boy. Yeah. Which is in some ways more maybe not more cynical, but certainly more critical about the role technology has to play and certainly more political. It's more it's it's willing to say, okay, we literally cannot divorce new technology from its political and historical contexts. This is happening on a specific day, in a specific time. This is the in, in, in specific lives where real people have been hurt in a special way for the creation of this new technology. And also, by the way, besides all this technological shit. Also, there's just rioting happening because yeah. of racism, because of poverty. Oh, oh my uh, god, this movie! Why is this movie not better known? Why is I it, don't know? Because the thing yeah. is, it becomes more relevant with time. Actually, the core yes. the core driver of the plot is the police murdered a civil rights leader with ties yeah. to gang violence, yep. and then hid the fucking footage. 
That is yep. literally what the movie is about. It is a political assassination uh, of a civil rights leader uh, that's causing L.A. to plunge into uh, absolute chaos. But then it's also about, uh, yeah, kind of our ability to preserve experiences and have experiences vicariously uh, through the internet, through through technology, and then what those experiences really mean and, and how right. this is going to affect us going forward. And so it's it's really like, like Strange Days is this amazing, it's like all the anxieties, it's, 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 it's all the, all the nightmares that like people the 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 you know if if like when the nineties went to sleep, strange days is what they dreamed. Yeah, <laughs> on their worst nights, yeah. yeah, like on their most troubled nights. <laughs> that like in in the day they were working on something that they hoped would change the world, and at night they dreamt about what that might actually mean. Uh, and it meant that not only could could we see a better world in our in our vr future but we could see but some people's better worlds were literally built on the backs of the pain of others um which is you know when when you get like that image that's been circulating this past week of mark zuckerberg walking past the (laughs) thousands of men uh wearing their oculus rift or i don't i don't know if that was was it a rift that they were that they were wearing Uh, some other it had to have been otherwise why zuckerberg why why zuckerberg right yeah it couldn't have been gear vr um i guess it could have been oculus has a has a phone version don't they do they don't have one they I must have they do i, have I don't know yeah, anyway anyway <laughs> but like uh, here we are again talking about vr again talking about like the the notion of of seeing ourselves differently and seeing a world in from a different perspective and i think that speaks to some of your original question danielle which is like maybe this stuff still resonates because we haven't really left the window of it yeah. yet yeah you know the vr part of it especially thinking about things like uh, Strange Days or Existence or uh, Lawnmower Man, like <laughs> that stuff all went away for years. But the entire, but the general notion of like new internet technologies, new computer technologies, that window has remained open long enough for VR to wrap back around into it again. <laughs> that's a, that's a really, really good point. And as I'm sort of sitting here thinking about evolution of technology, it seems like, you know, the, the big sci-fi point that's being made in a lot of the more cynical uh, works of this nature is, well, technology can evolve, but our brains haven't. Our minds haven't right. really evolved truly. And I think it's sort of the one movie that was trying to get at that um, is, is, you know, a Cronenberg classic. Um, wow. I can't believe I just... Oh, Videodrome. Videodrome, uh, sure. Where, where, you know, sort of the ending of Videodrome, which of course was sort of, like, you know, an infamously ending that they sort of made up on set basically where uh the main character's body video dream you know the whole premise of video dream is that you could be basically a, a slave almost to to technology and to these signals that are being sent in this weird sadomasochistic program sent out via tv signals basically and through a, a very primitive sort of vr headset as well um he starts to actually physically evolve and mutate and change as his mind is changing. And that's sort of like a really weird image that will always stick with me forever because of it. It's just weird implications of like, okay, so the human mind can be stimulated by all these completely different new things. And we can sort of know each other and understand each other in new and different ways or fail to understand each other in new and different ways with new technologies. But our bodies will never really change to, uh, you know, sort of associate with that. But like, and then this, this weird Cronenberg body horror vision, maybe 
maybe they can. Maybe that's another new step. And I'm sure there's a whole other genre that actually looks more deeply at that. <laughs> yeah, there definitely there definitely are things that are that are in that. But but you know that that ends up running into another real life thing of, of transhumanism, the stuff that like Ray Kurzweil yeah. is desperate to to get off the ground, yeah. um, which is its own huge mess that we would need another seven hours to really get into, <laughs> really, right? Um, yeah. I guess here, so here's my question to wrap it back around again to, to, to how you jumped this off. Like, why is it that we don't see the Strange Days or the Videodromes or even really the hackers in games? Why is it that yeah. we really only see variations on the net where even the power fantasies end up being this thing that feels regimented and mechanical and even when it wants – even when it's like playing at being critical of this stuff, rarely is self-reflectively critical. Like I enjoy the Deus Ex series a whole bunch. Um, but but I don't think that it ever – it never goes in these specific directions. Yeah, I think the one thing that's jumping to my mind immediately – I don't know if you played Soma last sure. year, Austin. Yes, I did but That's Soma. maybe one of the few games that uh, is attempting yeah, to – Yeah, I'll give you that for sure. Maybe chew on some of that. Uh, but, you know, to, to varying degrees of success, certainly it, it – uh, I think it does actually say some much more interesting things about transhumanism and about how machines are being, uh, the machine minds themselves being transhuman in a completely weird and interesting way. Mm -hmm. uh, that is pretty cool, but I can't think of anything really that successfully goes there. I just thought of two more because because I immediately yeah. just want to just dunk on my own <laughs> point and prove how wrong I am. I guess one is read uh, read no, only memories, okay. which I think is oh is of course yeah yeah a, a cyberpunk game that is deeply hopeful and and but not but not naively hopeful that engages yeah. with a lot of these problems and that engages with you know it doesn't it doesn't just stick with the like are computers pe can computers be people like that's fine <laughs> it's fine to have that conversation but it also yeah. is like well what's up with people like let's just talk about people also and the way people <laughs> treat each other so that does a really good thing and the other thing that i haven't played much of but but i played maybe an hour or two of is a game that came out last year called else.heart.break and Ooh, then open yeah. close parentheses else heartbreak <laughs> um it's really gorgeous and is this it, I think there's something formally really sweet about it in that it is a simulation of a city um, and it's kind of an adventure game that has been dropped into the simulated city where you're like walking or like, because here's my first day in Else Heartbreak was you go to this town to be a soda salesman and I'm, and you go to this hotel and you crash at the hotel and, and you're supposed to meet up with your, like the sales rep where you get your wholesale supply of soda, of cyber soda to sell and you can't find them. And so you ask them like, where have you seen anybody like this? And the simulation just eventually points you different places. And so for me, it was like, oh, that pointed me towards this cafe and I went to the cafe and like, oh, have you, has anybody seen a guy with a bunch of soda? Like, oh no, but if you're just new to town, you should come out tonight with us. We're going to go out to the, to the bar and get drunk and dance. I'm like, oh yeah, it's sounds cool and so i did that and i was just like oh i lived this day this really great first day in a new city life that that interspersed with all of this was like weird cyber like portals opening into new networks and all but it but it captured the kind of like open-endedness of movies like hackers like yeah. what is going to happen next how can technology change like it felt young and fresh and it also was kind of hard to get into which which i think almost works in a weird way for what it was trying sure. to do um but other than that most of the games especially big budget games like watchdogs yeah. end up being this kind of just like purely dystopic and not even critically dystopic just like cashing in dystopic vision of what yeah. technology is yeah i think you're right about that it, it seems that a, a refrain we come back to sometimes is that a lot of big budget games in, in terms of their narrative other than maybe the metal gear <laughs> solid series mm -hmm. uh, do tend to play things very safe with 
you know, topics that, that actually touch on a ton of things in terms of identity politics and, and other uh, sort of heavy material. But I guess as long as there are Metal Gear Solids in the world, there's, well, no, <laughs> there's something there. I think to, to make the sort of, uh, the, the, the sort of game version of Hackers or the, or the sort of game on a big budget that you were just talking about, uh, Austin, what's that game's name again, by the way? It's called Else Heartbreak. Else like heartbreak. as if it's a, a code, as if it's like a line of code. Else yeah. space heart dot break and then open parentheses close parentheses. <laughs> Thank you. Yep. Awesome. Well it's done. a function. Yeah. It's uh, lovely. Yep. <laughs> yep. So I, I think the other part of this is that because most games are pretty bad at doing uh much like interaction with characters mm -hmm. uh, outside of like yeah. tightly controlled encounters uh you can't have things be very open and so like you always have to have a reason for the player to be basically alone against the world and at that point you're you're in pure dystopia territory All because right. like oh what's your vision of the future but you also have to make sure somehow the player is completely isolated uh, and at odds with his or her environment. So the player must be the only person <laughs> who's aware of the, you know the limits of the simulation. Right. You know this is yeah. the, the 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 players you know awake among the sleepers, uh, and I think that's sort of why these games. You know, I think it's partly because a lot of these these pivotal movies and books inspired the, the same ones inspired game designers again and again and so they're trying to reach out toward like um you know sci-fi noir right. and stuff like that but i think yeah. the other part of it is that there are just a lot of hard problem design problems to solve uh that that don't that make an optimistic version of the future which is already a difficult thing yeah. to sell sometimes or make interesting. Uh, if you add design issues into that, suddenly it's like, oh boy, that's that, that's a real tough one. <laughs> well, that's the thing that's yeah. that's frustrating too. It's not just I, I'm not like, oh, I only want an optimistic vision of the future. Like I'm not that dude. I'm not the guy who's like, ugh, why do people distrust tech? You know, screw Black Mirror. It's too it's too dystopian. Like I, we, we screw Black Mirror for a couple of reasons, but like not just because <laughs> it's being. Um, the thing that is extra frustrating is what you just hit on rob which is so many of the games in this space are about you as an independent person coming to coming into knowledge that shows that the world is broken and then you trying to fix it and like those games go one of two ways either you fix it or you don't and they call that like tragically heroic when in fact the actual tragedy is that in reality, lots of people know that the world is kind of broken and still can't do anything about it. Like, it isn't that the lone hero doesn't do it. It's that even as a group, you can't get it done. And that's, you know, that's part of why all I ever want in my life is a cyberpunk Crusader Kings 2. That's all. That's all I want is, like, I want, like, the vision of this. Um, I want, like, those. I want nice. a game like that to try to tackle the problems of, of modern and, like, near future civilization uh, in that sort of way that is about... Oh yeah, it doesn't matter that you have a bunch of knowledge. It doesn't matter that that you might understand that that a law was just passed that kind of screws you over. It doesn't matter that you maybe are the only person in your family who <laughs> understands what the FBI versus Apple stuff is, but that like actually thousands and millions of people probably have a decent understanding of what that stuff is now. And that doesn't actually matter. Like you none of us are in a position of power to affect that case at this point and, and any precedent it might set. And like a game that engages with stuff at that level uh, Obviously, it's a big hurdle to, to clear, but I'd love to see someone try to clear it. Uh, yes. So, Danielle, you, you brought this up with Super Hot. And I did. I've sort of been sitting here, like, <laughs> dying to know, like, yeah, yeah, cyberpunk, cool, whatever. 
like how is cyber how is super hot and like is it is it that sexy it looks game that sexy. Austin wanted? Oh, and like the it, version that came out it looks years ago was pretty sexy. sexy so All I'm really needs- curious about what you're gonna say. <laughs> It was, and it still is, definitely. Um, I I am very, very into Super Hot. Also, because it's mm. it's an FPS that's actually doing something different, which we don't get often by any means. And it's doing something different, not just to be different, but it's doing something different in a way that's interesting and fun. I am not, uh, you know, an FPS whiz. I, I guess I'm not really a whiz at, at any kind of game. You know, as I as I slowly go through my my world as a game reviewer, but mm. this game feels like a puzzle game. And, you know, people say that about a lot of things like, oh, you know, timing based puzzles or this is like a puzzle. This actually feels like solving a puzzle. This actually feels like a much more oh, fun version of The damn. Witness. Sorry, I guess I have to mention The Witness every week. Um, but, you know, mm. you actually feel like you're you're empowered in this world and you are solving the problem. And of course, the problem is is cutting dudes in half or shooting them. But they're they're not really dudes. They are computer projections of dudes, even within the sort of fiction in the world. So it's. It's it's very cool. It's very stylish. It feels wonderful to play. It feels absolutely wonderful, uh, which is, I think, the most important thing. <laughs> when I play the demo, I, I'm, I've been curious about this. During the demo, it was like, okay, this game has an awesome trick. But once you figure out that, like, oh, you just have to, like, do this sort of stutter step thing to, like, <laughs> sort of plan your next move. And then just do it, and it's almost like first person, first person turn based yeah. combat. Like you are, you are basically the VAT system, right? That's that's kind yeah. of how it's operating. Uh, I was I was a little worried that once you sort of grokked that, that it would be hard to make a game that stayed uh, fresh and interesting. Uh, if you know, j- based on that, based on that mechanic, huh. it has new tricks that are just as mind blowing as the sort of. Uh, initial right. premise of you it only moves when you move which is you know sort of the whole thing that everybody talks about with it yeah it has really cool new tricks that make you feel even more powerful and even more awesome it, it actually it just it sort of iterates on its own mechanics and sort of introduces new mechanics that make sense in that world in a really in the way that really great sort of video game ass video games do you know the way that like a really great sort of pure I'm trying to think of a good example of like a very pure, you know, mechanics-based game that that sort of does that in a brilliant way. Sure. I, I guess you could even say that something like Super Mario Brothers, the original Super Mario Brothers, you know, sort of introducing new things like the fire flower or, or you know, something along yeah. those lines. It, it does things like that in a very smart, sort of economical way, and it is, it's really great. I mean, I'm not done with it yet, but I am... I am really enjoying it. And of course the, the cyberpunk sort of theming uh, and the aesthetics don't hurt. I play, you know, I, I like to play things for escapism and this is a very fun and interesting and weird world that scratches that itch for me as well. So it's not enough to, to bin something into the, into the category of escapism and then like, okay, that's, that's it. Even inside of that category, we can be critics and, and can do evaluation of like, okay, like what's this doing with the notion of escapism, right? Like what's this doing with the notion of violence? It's not, it's not enough for me to just end it at like, oh yeah, this is just fun violence. And it's also not enough for me to be like, ugh, this is violent. This is too violent. I'm throwing it away. Like we can, we can, we can hold ourselves up to a higher standard and, yeah. and dig in a little bit. Like I've seen some people talk about super hot in relation to hot. In Miami, and I'm not saying that there is not a comparison to be made there. there. There is a comparison to be made there, from what I've seen. But like, they're not the same thing just because they're both about like puzzly killing people. You know, um, we can we can we can engage yeah. with them as individual objects and like tear apart what makes each of them tick. And it's how you end up with movies like Hackers and The Net that like both are 1990s yes. ass 1990s movies about the internet. 
but that are distinctly <laughs> different films, you know? Yeah. Phew. Oh, that was a perfect way to wrap things I, up. I would love to be. That'd we be should great. we should have you on this podcast more often. I think. <laughs> Although there is a, no, there is a, a trend here, and I, I swear to God, I didn't yeah. I, I didn't plan on this, uh, but <laughs> there is a trend now that when Austin and I are on the same podcast, it turns that's into all right. the I, cyberpunk hour. Uh, it's fine with me. <laughs> the, welcome to the Marxist Cyberpunk Hour with Austin Walker and Rob Zachney. Uh, frankly, me that's too. a world I would like to live in as well. So yeah. you know, sounds good to me. I mean, right. we kind of already do. We just live in the shittier True. version we of live- it with less cool technology. <laughs> but but, <laughs> but Mark Zuckerberg's here. Oh to man, I need to add that. another. Oh good. <laughs> I I swear the, that picture, that picture is making the rounds. Though what amazes me about it is how. It perfectly aligns. Oh, it's with so the obvious, right? Like it's it's so. Oh, yeah. oh, it's unbelievable! Oh. It's unbelievable! <laughs> All right, we should get to our weekend correspondence <laughs> that like uh, before idea. this literally does like become its own podcast. <laughs> uh, the the uh, the yep. the idle weekend uh, marks a cyberpunk hour. Oh, I uh, love it! All right, so our first our first email is from uh, Danny. Uh, I really enjoyed your discussion about scoring reviews, but how does the quality of the written review affect your decision? Has a poorly written review of a game ever steered you away? Are there reviewers who you look for because you enjoy that person's writing? (laughs) Yes, to all of those. (laughs) For me, anyway. There have been so many games where I've been like, oh, that looks somewhat interesting, and then I read a review and I'm like, oh, woof. You know, somebody who just really just there's something really off-putting about the way they write or or what their opinions were and i just cannot even deal um i won't name names but there there that has definitely happened to me before and i personally do always sort of follow writers that i enjoy their work and i feel like i feel like that's a pretty common thing especially now in 2016 that that folks will you know sort of be interested in certain writers especially because sometimes some of us go from you know different publications to different publications and you sort of you know follow people who you generally tend to you know agree with their opinions or feel as if you know even if you don't agree with their opinions you know somebody like uh, tom chick for example for me who very dear friend of the podcast i agree with him uh very strongly about you know, 25% of the time and the rest of the time I don't, but I will always want to read uh, Tom's reviews because he always makes interesting arguments and always, you know, really supports his arguments. And it's always enriching for me as a writer to read his work. Yeah, I'm his, totally with you, work, yeah, like 100%. So, yeah. That is, and Tom is definitely one of the people who I would <laughs> jump to, to say like, oh yeah, like when I read a Tom Chick review, I know I'm going to have some feelings, you know, like it's it's the Kanye lyric of, of yes. uh, you know, <laughs> You might feel some way about about Tom Chick, but at least you feel something. <laughs> like that's I do. I feel something about every Tom Chick review. So uh, yes. also on that list for me are like people who are doing yes. non-review work. Um like like Zelani Stort does a review here or there, but like, oh, Zelani wrote something, I need to read this. Like I need to set the time aside. Liz, yeah. Liz Ryerson wrote something. Okay, I need yes. to read this. Um and the, the the second part of that question of just like, Absolutely. has it ever steered me completely away from something? Sometimes it does the opposite, where it's like, I'll read a review that is written with such disdain to where like, I don't even like the process of reading the review that part of me wants to say like, <laughs> okay, no, I want to read, I want to play this thing. Like now, what inspired this deg- this tone in this writer? Like how, what is this thing? And, uh, you know, every now and then. It turns out they hate the Yarny. The is they just don't like oh, Yarny. God. Yep. But that wasn't even a review. That, they think uh, he should okay. burn okay. in a terrible place. 
I know that, that was that was a weird that was that was a weird thing, but uh, that wasn't a review. But I, but I do know what you mean. Yeah. Uh, when when you have something where like it's it's right. like the writer has a, a grudge to settle. Uh, sure, with yeah. the game, which actually sometimes happens. Um, like if like especially when you're pressed for time, eventually like a a review can sort of yeah. become a you are trapped with a game you are not enjoying. And you are committed out of obligation to playing a certain amount of that game or to a certain point of that game before you can, quote unquote, have an opinion. And you're, you know, part of you is desperately hoping. Maybe this will be the mission. This will be the time that, like, it all comes together for me. Yeah. But as it keeps failing that that hope, you're, 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 the darkness grows within you. <laughs> and that, and that <laughs> yes. I think is the, the other part of that, which is like, you know, eventually a game you might have put down, uh, if you've put an extra like eight, 10 hours into it and like hated every minute of it, uh, by the time, by the time it comes time to like file an opinion about it, um, your dislike has sort of, uh, crystallized, uh, in the fires of hate. That's especially yes. true if what you're doing is freelance work where you're not being paid by the hour. You're not a salaried employee. You're being yes. paid, a, uh, paid a flat rate, no matter whether or not that game took you 20 hours or 30. In some cases, obviously you'll get a little extra if it's something that's like incredibly long or if there's a rush on it or something like that. But like, that extra eight hours because you got stuck on that one map. I, I, so the game that's popping to mind for me is a game called Codename Steam that came out last year. That was a a, a kind of um, a miserable oh, yeah. tactics game. Really disappointed me that I was reviewing for GameSpot at the time. And um, it was just one of those games that was like, I on paper, I should love this. This is a, a tactics game that, that takes some cues from Valkyria Chronicles, a game I adore. It has like uh, it's a ridiculous mashup of of kind of American um, myth and and fairy tale and tall tale. <laughs> There's a giant Abe Lincoln mech in it. I like mechs about as much as I like cyberpunk, which is to say that I have very yeah, deep and yes. complicated feelings about them, but generally <laughs> still appreciate them a whole bunch. Um, and I hated it. And like that last eight hours, where it was just going and going and going. Really, it really kind of installed. A, a, not just a hatred, but something a little more, a little less abstract and a little bit just more like, like there was something in my, in my skin that I just wanted to get, I wanted it away from me. I wanted to not even be near it ever again. Um, and that definitely <laughs> came across in my review. I think maybe to the games, maybe to the readers, uh, dismissal. Like maybe, maybe I probably could have dialed it back some and actually made my points a little bit better. But I, I think it was important to, to, to let it really all hang out, you know? Yeah, you had to go with your gut. <laughs> yeah. And we talk about this on the show. Sometimes, like, you're, you know, you toning it back is also, to a degree, like, lying a little bit about how you actually feel about a game, right? To, to come mm -hmm. out of an experience like that and be like, well, here are the pros, here are the cons, <laughs> but really, this game is, like, it's, it's a super yeah. fun site that you can install on your computer. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Point, you just have to admit that uh, yeah. and, and write from that perspective. Um, Danielle, you want the next email? Yes. This one is from Tristan. Tristan says, I thought, I'd uh, I thought I'd pose a question to you two on the topic of using video games as a form of relief from illness, stress, anxiety, and all the other nasty things that get people down. I suffer from chronic pain, and none of the many drugs I've been prescribed make any difference. While I find it fairly easy to put it all behind me with a good game, immersive experiences that require a lot of attention, like Dark Souls or Monster Hunter, are my go-to. But even more slow-paced games like Gone Home or more recently Firewatch manage to suck me in with their story and let me forget about the pain. 
Have you ever used gaming to get you through a tough time? Do you think it's potentially dangerous to rely on it too much? Big love from Australia, Tristan. Wow. Um, as somebody who's been uh, through a really probably inordinate amount of heartbreaks <laughs> in my life, I could pinpoint um, the games in my life that I've played to get me through a really terrible, you know, not sleeping for a week, can't eat, miserable heartbreak. Uh, Perfect Dark was one of those in high school. I didn't sleep for two weeks when I broke up with this uh, this one person in high school. And Perfect Dark was like the game that, that just it got me through it. The, the single player mode, it just... I liked it a lot. I was 16, you know, and it was it was perfect for that time and that summer and that awful experience. You know, there have been more recent games that I've played to get me through heartbreaks. I could seriously name like every game that that basically got me through a really terrible, miserable heartbreak or, or a tough time where, you know, family members died or or something like that. So I I am so guilty of this. And then the game becomes completely not in a negative way. I I, I want to be clear about this. It is not like a negative experience that I had with the game. In fact, sometimes I feel like I, I liked the game even more because it gave me relief from from the sort of psychic agony I was mm -hmm. in at the time. Um, but it will always be sort of like really in, just crystallized in that time in my life, who I was, why I was hurting, you know, the person that had just dumped me, basically. Like it, it all is wrapped up for me in a, in a very sort of weird and oblique way, sort of looking back. So, so maybe there is, uh, maybe it is somewhat dangerous to rely on things too much. But I think if you are really in any kind of pain or, or you know, something is just wrong with you or, or feels wrong to you, it, you know, I don't think it's bad to have a crutch that won't, you know, make you uh, addicted to a dangerous substance or, you know, something like that. Right. Like there are worse things to do to get over something. So I think video games are a fairly safe <laughs> uh, possible alternative for people. I definitely, in undergrad, the, the like less healthy version of this was like going through a bad breakup and then just oblivion had just come out. I was like, oh, okay, I'm not going to classes. Oh, like yeah. I'm not... I'm I'm not dealing with people <laughs> for this week or next week. I'm just going to play a bunch of Oblivion and then like order some pizza and that'll be it. Um, which is part of why like now the thing I go to in order to feel a little bit less terrible is something way shorter, which is I, I play through Gravity Bone and 30 Flights of Loving on my worst days. Oh, nice. Uh, which are very short, very like quick, digestible games that have such a strong sense of aesthetic that they tend to just jostle me out of the kind of feeling of being stuck in place because it's just like yeah. oh wow oh wow like i can't it's like reading a short story that's that that i love or something i'm just like okay this has recentered me a little bit it's it's given me a little jolt i need to get through the rest of this week um and and it's much less risk of completely consuming all of my hours than oblivion was <laughs> in in you know 2005 or whatever so one of the first articles I ever wrote uh, as a, as a freelancer about games was about games as pain therapy, mm. uh, and you know I talked in that article uh, like about both kinds of pain, uh, you know, physical and and mental, um, and the the like you know so we we mostly focusing on the on the mental here uh, or emotional, and like absolutely games can can help mitigate that i think the thing that frustrates me uh, about that sometimes is um in my experience a lot of times like everything it's always disappointing because you can it's like you can numb the pain for like as long as you're playing game but the moment you unplug right. it's yeah. like oh it was all still there your it life is still right exactly <laughs> where you left it 
Uh, and that was always sort of a crushing feeling and, and made actually, and this is where it became dangerous. It could lead to spirals. Uh, and it did at certain points in my life where it's like, well, whoa, I do not want to be not playing this game right now. <laughs> Better, you know, go smoke a half pack of cigarettes and then get right back to, right back to Warcraft. <laughs> um, but the, the, the thing about like, uh, physical pain, what was interesting is this was so this was back around like 2007 and I don't know what the state of the research is right now. Uh, it's been a while since I've looked into it, but uh, one of the really interesting studies I found was they used some uh, crude form of VR uh, to deal with. Um, they'd done some tests with uh, people suffering from uh, severe burns, oh, wow. uh, and they created sort of a, a little game hmm. uh, set in a winter wonderland type setting. Oh. Uh, and because you were sort of denied, like it, you know, it was, it was auditory sensation. Uh, you you were sort of all you could see was sort of a a cool, soothing, um, like Christmas time snow village setting. And they did observe like noticeable like analgesic effects huh. uh, huh. for for these people who you know I mean burns are some of the painful injuries you can have uh, yeah. and, and so like to that that was a good test to sort of see whether this could actually work uh, and it did and the the question I don't think they'd fully answered was whether or not um, like the the theme or the setting of the interactive experience uh, you had mattered that much or whether it was more just sort of isolating the person from the right. physical experience uh, of their pain. Yeah. Uh, and, and this is actually one of the things that really excites me about VR uh, for all the cynicism around <laughs> it. There's a lot of settings where being divorced from, from your reality yep. could actually be really, really good. Yeah. Um, and so I think like the the rise of of, of these these VR uh, systems could be really exciting, uh, you know, for uh, for for things like uh, chronic pain therapy. Um, recently, I just had so I've, I've talked about my experience uh, with my knee surgery and playing Final Fantasy, uh, yeah. or, you know, on a previous show. Uh, but you know, I just went through uh, you know an ankle surgery that that laid me up for a while and and was was pretty damn painful. And you know, speaking from my experience, like. What's interesting is I can't play strategy games uh, if I have the least bit of um of like chronic consistent pain because that has a way of like it's uh, totally like Harrison Bergeron right like you you try to get a train of thought going and just that like throb of pain breaks in and you lose it but playing Destiny oh so much Destiny. <laughs> Uh, just for like hours mm -hmm. and hours of this really repetitive, grindy shooter that like you, there's not that many, like there's not that much content for it. Uh, so you see the same thing again and again was perfect because it didn't really require much like taxing mental thought, but it was completely physically absorbing, uh, and completely like made me forget about the fact that like it felt like my ankle was like on fire. So, uh, yeah, I, like, you know, when it comes to that stuff, especially like physical pain, um, you know, what's dangerous opioids, opioids <laughs> yeah. are, are dangerous. Yes. Yep. So really, whatever, whatever it takes, Tristan. Yeah. I got a really nice letter from someone recently who saw that I'd been putting together Gundam models. Um, and, uh, they'd said that they had been, they had been dealing with a respiratory uh, illness where they had actually been in a coma for a month. And they had no idea that these things existed, these like little Gundam mecha models. Um, and they showed their doctor the video of me putting one of these together. And the doctor immediately was like, oh, we should get you these immediately because they will help you build your fine motor skills back up after your time in the, in the coma. Oh, wow. And it totally worked. And like, I don't think I've ever been as joyous about like a, a fun, <laughs> dumb little goofy video I've done as this like, oh, wow, like this is literally clearly I've given you a new method of not just like relaxing and, and playing, but like 
you your life is is better than it was before this. It really, really warmed my heart. That's really nice. Yeah. This one comes from John. How have your expectations affected your enjoyment of a game? Any examples of where you charged how you played to meet your expectations? Oh, sorry, changed how you... Oh, I'll just read it again, sorry. <laughs> I can make a note. <clears throat> how have your expectations affected your enjoyment of a game? Any examples of where you changed how you played to meet your expectations? What games gained new meaning the second time through? Recently, Rob hosted Austin Walker, hey, Hi. <laughs> on the Three Moves Ahead podcast, where they talked in length about strategy games, cyberpunk, and cyberpunk strategy games. <laughs> One juicy verbal nugget that got wedged in my ear was when Austin was talking about the additional ground rules that he established for playing watch, watch underscore dogs in order to derive the desired enjoyment from the game. The notion reminded me of my experience running tabletop RPG games. Where before a game started or a new player joined, we would make some time to go over expectations in regards to how, to the game at hand. Ground rules about the severity of character death, how much tomfoolery is allowed, the amount of magic in the world, etc. Uh, by bringing the player's expectations in line with what the game will and won't be, removed it from potential frustration and increased the enjoyment for all involved. Wow. Uh <laughs> I'm going to let you two take it away because this one sounds like it was very much uh, inspired by your recent discussion. <laughs> but now I can't tell the watchdog story that I've already told, which is what I planned on at least <laughs> referencing briefly. Um, well, you, I think for people who maybe don't listen to Three Moves Ahead, uh, maybe a brief pre-scene. Uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, basically, go. I knew going into Watch Dogs that I was going to have problems with it based on its... I, I knew I was very excited about it and also knew that it would disappoint me in some big ways based on a lot of the stuff we've already <laughs> spoken about today. And so the promise I made myself was I was going to not kill anybody in that game. I was not going to fire a gun. I would use my baton to quote-unquote knock people out, but that was it. And I would use hacking to like, you know, distract them and stuff like that. And that changed the game dramatically from being this um, kind of just shooter into being a, a game where violence was not only not an option, but when it did eventually come up, it was deeply emotional. That was kind of a big part of, I, I wrote a, a piece a couple of years ago called Real Human Beings about Watchdogs and Shadow of Mordor. Um, about this. Mm -hmm. And if you're curious about that story, you can just go there and, and, and read about it or go to, to, uh, to uh, three moves ahead and listen to Rob and I talk more about cyberpunk. Um, <laughs> the other thing I just wanted to say is really briefly, the, the bit in that letter about setting kind of ground rules at tabletop games is so great and so important. If you're out there thinking about playing in a tabletop game, or if you already are, it's a thing I do all the time now because it, not only lets you say like, oh, like this is going to be, we want to play a game about like going through dungeons and killing things versus I want to play a game that's like deeply Game of Thrones political or that is like, you know, philosophical in the, in the Ghost in the Shell or Blade Runner way, right? Like it, it's also a place where you can say like, you know what? Like I don't want to have to, I don't want to play a game where we talk about slavery too much right now. Like my, my head, like maybe mm -hmm. that's just the work I do. Like maybe I do research into slavery all day. I don't want to come home and like play a game in which that's also the topic, you know, or I don't want to deal yeah. with, you know, uh, questions of, you know, there's a bunch of things that, that you can just straight up say like, Oh yeah, these are off the table for this game. And we can still have a bunch of fun without dealing with that. And that's totally cool. Or you can do the opposite. Right. And which is to say like, I really want to play a game that is about marginalization. Like let's make sure that we pay attention to, to the social groups that are in the margins. And this is like one of the advantages that tabletop games have over, over video games in this sense of just like, Oh, right. We get to determine what the limits of this thing are and what the focuses are. Um, obviously the systems also encourage that to some degree. Like 
some editions of Dungeons and Dragons will always just be things where you go into dungeons and kill dragons, no matter how flowery you make it, because the systems just encourage that. Um, but if in a lot of cases, you can figure out how to, to take a system and, and make it the game you want. It's one of the reasons why I love tabletop role playing games so much. And for people, yeah. <laughs> and for people who are curious about your love of tabletop role playing, uh, Austin, are there any podcasts? Yeah, I, I run a recommend? podcast called friendsatthetable.net. Uh, it's at friendsatthetable.net. Right now, it is a, we're kind of coming to the close of the second season, which is, has been a game about, um, God, cyberpunk noir, giant robots. <laughs> it's all the yes. stuff I love. Marginalization. <laughs> the party is like, is like a sentient robot. A uh, a kind of uh, a schoolboy on the run from his evil like mind hacking school, a, uh, a a former prince of a dilapidated empire, and the last character who is my favorite. She is she described herself as what if uh, what if Beyonce used to ha- used to be Han Solo and has a mech. Uh, and that's <laughs> oh my god! I was going to say we are like one mecca away from this just turning into like an Austin oh. Walker like fetish. There are <laughs> lots of mecca in this game, Rob. Let me tell you, friends at the table.net, I have a really good crew. There's like original music and stuff. It's a whole thing. It's the best. This sounds great. I need to definitely check this out myself. <laughs> Uh, we have an email here from Anthony, and uh, it's not really a question. It's just a fun story relating to uh, a story I told in the previous podcast about uh, going to illicit lengths to enjoy <laughs> gaming. Uh, so from Anthony, he writes, like Rob, we also had a separate commu- computer room, which housed our old compact. It was positioned next door to my bedroom. So also like Rob, I waited until 1130 or 12 at night to sneak over and play games on that PC late into the next morning. I have lots of memories of hearing noises, thinking someone was about to check in. So I would turn off the monitor. Yep. Done that. <laughs> and quickly run back to bed and hide under the sheets. See, this is an amateur move, actually, because that's what that's how you get caught. You got you can't run. Uh, the, that makes the, noise. Yeah. No, the, the, th- the thing, Anthony. Uh, the thing past Anthony is to keep like a blanket jammed under the door uh, so no light escapes. And then, uh, and, and yeah, totally turn off that monitor and hold still and uh, count to uh, about like 180. That's usually long enough. Anyway, Anthony continues. <laughs> True pro move. There was a period when where I was playing a lot of Star Siege Tribes and Tribes 2, a multiplayer FPS with large maps of rolling hills and futuristic structures. Is it possible to fall in love with someone during an email? Because I, I think <laughs> yes. it's happening, Anthony. <laughs> yes. Uh, anyway, I got so serious about playing that I joined a clan based all the way in New Zealand. Still remember them. The 52nd Conscripts. <laughs> Just so I had a regular group to play with in the late hours. But we still had a 56k modem, however. Oh, no. So pings to to Australia New Zealand servers reached upwards of five whole seconds oh outdoors. Oh, my God. Jeez. The ping was only one second indoors. Only one second. Imagine. <laughs> the ping was only one second indoors, however. So I contributed by specializing in indoor defense and equipping large explosives so aim didn't matter as much. Oh, my That's God. I remember playing a clan match scheduled at three in the morning on a Sunday and the match ending just in time for my parents to come around and wake me up for church. Oh, Oh, that's so good. Oh, that's that is perfect. Your friends must have been your 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 Aussie and Kiwi friends must have been completely awesome because I can only imagine how actually infuriating it was to play that game with you. That's a beautiful tale of of the the internet and our new technology crossing bridges across the world. Right there, uh, our cyberpunk future is not all bad. It's true. We have tribes. 
Yeah, exactly. We've got tribes and some nice, nice Kiwi folks. It is the 90s and we have tribes. Yeah. The last email of the week comes from Matt. I was reflecting on an earlier episode of Idle Weekend where Danielle said that Dust Force was video game comfort food. However, I recall that Dust Force was a game that Danielle gave a 5 out of 10 at Polygon, a low score by any measure. She mentioned it on Idle Thumbs, as I recall. I'm curious what led Danielle to her change of heart. Guilt over a low score leading to replays, perhaps? This guy developed the game. I swear, calling it now. (laughs) Maybe he did. (laughs) What are the details with regards to how you learned to love Dust Force? As a continuation of that idea, are you guys conflicted about video game reviews as snapshots of one's opinion at that point in time that may not reflect the full experience that even you as an individual may have? Thanks for all those pods you've been casting. Matt. Now, this, this was a letter that I thought, would, you know, uh, Rob and I discussed this before the call, and we thought, you know, this might be a good one to address because this is sort of a perfect example of what Tom was talking about and what was mentioned in this email, what Tom Schick was talking about in a previous episode about reviews really are a snapshot in time. They, you know, that timestamp is right there next to your byline uh, in, in most reviews anyway and they kind of have to be because you can't uh, sit down and play a game and consider how am i going to feel about this in 5 10 20 35 years on my deathbed will i feel this way about dust force you know you, you just can't do that you would you would just lose your perspective you would lose your ability to sort of judge how things were going at the time so dust force is also um Let's just say I was going through a breakup at the time and it wasn't the best time for me. And I was enjoying the game quite a bit. And then I sort of ran up against some difficulties in the game. And this is something that happened with one of my very first reviews at Polygon as well, a game called Alien Spidey, which is one of the most difficult games I've ever played in my life. It seriously made Bloodborne look like, you know, like a children's uh, fun time at the park, basically. It, it, it was like a ridiculously, ridiculously difficult game that gated progress really, really it was just mean spirited <laughs> with, with how sort of perfectly you had to play to get through the game. So, I think in this case with Dust Force, it was something I learned to really, really enjoy and love uh, later on. And sort of that review pressure of just kind of having a day or two to play something and and write a review. I got really frustrated at not making a lot of progress, at kind of sucking at the game. And that sort of happened. And, you know, I'll own up to it. Like, I I do think it's a good game. I do think it has some problems. I don't think it's, you know, perfect. Uh, Five out of 10, by the way, Polygon is supposed to be an average score, even though I know nobody thinks of it that way. Uh, But it was supposed to be like, this is an interesting thing with problems. I'm not sure. I'm not always sure everyone at Polygon (laughs) thinks that way. Yeah, Yeah, you're not wrong (laughs) by any means. Uh, Although that's how how I was attempting to sort of grade it at the time. And and of course, again, Polygon, uh, you don't actually choose the score. You write the text that you write, and the reviews editor uh, chooses the score. So it was not like I... Yeah, that's how it works at Polygon. Uh, The deputy reviews editor or the reviews editor uh, actually chooses the score. They might discuss it with you. Oh, yeah. That's that's pretty public public. knowledge. Yeah. Yeah. It is? Oh, yeah. Totally public. Holy hell. It doesn't stop people from yelling at reviewers about what score they gave games, though, even though it's public. It sure does. That is a singular feature of of, of that website. It is a very unique thing. Very interesting. It is it is a very unique thing, but it is absolutely uh, the way it works there. And, so uh, yeah. just because I, I, I totally like like Dust Force never made an impression on me whatsoever. Mm-hmm. It sounds like it's a game that's very much like um, you know, like like it's a it's a grading game, right? It's constantly measuring your performance yes. to see if you yes, can it progress. Is. 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh yeah, that's not like so. And you had to review it like in a weekend. Yeah, yeah. it was. Oh. I did not have a long deadline on that one. So this uh, this brings me to a perfect example <laughs> of what yeah. we've been talking about a few times on the podcast. Yeah, and and this developers is is why you need to think about when code goes out to reviewers because yeah. the yes. <laughs> the trend right now that I'm that I'm seeing as a freelancer is there is tremendous pressure to get that review out in the first 40 hour, 48 hours a game uh, is available publicly because uh, that seems to be when the most traffic uh, for it is is yes. done and reviews like decrease in value as a thing to publish uh, the, the farther you get from uh, the embargo lifting or or the game coming out and I, I think there are some games that are probably nicely served by people not having too long to think about it yes. or, or reflect on it. <laughs> but I also think there's a lot that really get punished because especially if you if if your your game is something that like has has to be figured out and and you know people actually have to like sort of master it and get good at it uh, and figure out how the systems work to to really get the most out of it. Yeah. Um, if that review code goes out you know, 48 hours before the game goes live or the Friday, the Friday before it goes live and it's, it's, it's being released on Monday or Tuesday. Um, the people reviewing it are doing so like kind of with a gun in their head. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they may not like, they do not have the option to give it more time. Yeah. So that's, I mean, and, and, and that's something that it, it troubles me. Uh, Cause I actually don't think it's really all that possible in a lot of circumstances to do it a thorough or great review on something when you've had it for a weekend. Uh, so I, that's just something that, uh, that I, that I observe time and again, uh, is that re- like the reviews hit reviewers pretty late. And then, uh, you're, you kind of have to play it in this really hyper artificial setting. Yeah. It's, it's really not the best. And it is, I agree with you, especially as you know, my first, I'm in my second month as a reviews editor now, actually sort of assigning these things and getting the code. Sometimes the day it releases and telling mm-hmm. my freelancer like, Hey, do what you can. I'm also like, I try to be nice and understand that freelancers have a hundred assignments, but it's, it's really tough. So yeah. Uh, publishers, please, please send us codes. Uh, <laughs> give us time. It's good for everybody. It's it's healthy. <laughs> I'll say there is something else curious going back to that email that uh, about the, I don't think that this emailer is, is um, out of, I don't think they're the only person who has ever thought that a, a final that a review should be kind of final. Like, oh, this is this is Danielle's opinion on Dust Force now and forever <laughs> is totally yeah. a prevalent opinion about about reviews in general, not just game reviews, but especially game reviews. I would say, yeah. Um, yeah. and I think that that reflects something that's kind of frustrating about the culture around games, in that even in spaces where we are being extra critical and really trying to like push the the push the discourse forward, so to speak. Uh, I think we still end up getting trapped in this notion of like, oh, well, what is your final judgment? What is your objective? Even though we, of course, understand that it is subjective and et cetera, we still want to know what you think now and forever about this game. And like, we don't really have a space f- to return to these things very often. Like now and then you'll get a place like Rock, Paper, Shotgun does like a series that that is something like um, why I was wrong about this game or, or things like that. But, but in the kind of the biggest places in the industry that people turn to for game reviews, there isn't a place for a writer to say, actually, I went back to this thing and like, hey, it turns out I like it more than I than I thought I would or that, that I yeah. thought I did, even though I beat it already and didn't really enjoy it the first yeah. time through. Um, and, and I think that's a whole mix of reasons for that tied up with like the kind of consumer first model of, of games criticism to just like the way we think about games as disposable objects. But like, it's definitely a thing to think about going forward. So 
with that, with the end of our weekend correspondence, we're going to go right into our weekend projects. This could be a game, a movie, a book, any kind of media that you are enjoying and you'd like to endorse. Austin, since you are our guest of honor, would you like to go first? Sure. So it's just the thing that I'm, that I'm, here's my endorsement this week. Here's my, here's the thing. I think I am going to try to get back to this weekend. It's a game called Californium. Uh, it's like okay. California, but it's, it's California. As if it was like a, a, okay. a, like a mineral, like a mineral yeah. or an element. <laughs> uh, exactly. It's on Steam. It's like 10 bucks on Steam. It is a game in the vein of, I, you know, uh, my coworker Alex Navarro described it as like jazz punk played straight a little bit. Um, oh. It is a first person adventure walk around thing uh, in which you are playing through worlds that were inspired by the life and stories of Philip K. Dick. Um, like, Whoa. and it has just a really breathtaking style and there are a few twists to it that I don't want to give away, um, right up front. Uh, the basics of it are that you're, you're walking around and waiting for things in the environment, not waiting, but looking for things in the environment that don't just, that don't seem right. Either they're glitching out or they're changing as you approach them. Uh, and then you're like clicking on a thing when you reveal it. It's, it's almost like a hidden picture game or something. Um, and in that way, it is, it is very simple. Uh, but there's a lot happening narratively and thematically that ties both into the life of Philip K. Dick uh, and also the sort of the ideas that Philip K. Dick had about technology and drugs and and surveillance and the state and, you know, uh, uh, paranoia in general. Um, it is a beautiful game and I'm excited to get back to it. It's a few hours long. I'm, I'm like an hour in it, into it now. So I'm going to sit some time aside this weekend and, and dive back into it. Awesome. It it does look beautiful. Is, I'm sort of looking at it right now and I'm like, whoa. It is very this pretty. Is, yeah. This is gorgeous. Awesome. Rob, what are you watching, reading, playing, enjoying right now? Recently I I, I had to in the in the course of a couple of days uh take flights to to and from LA uh oh. in the space of like forty eight hours. Uh so a lot of time on planes. Uh <laughs> you know, and it was it was not a great time. But here is the real nightmare. Um I bought a bunch of stuff for my laptop, which is a Windows 8 laptop, blah, blah, blah. And whatever, for whatever reason, I ended up, I've, I've sort of gotten into the habit of buying videos, uh, for that through the, uh, video store on Windows 8, which is the Xbox video store. Oh. Uh, so I downloaded a bunch of stuff, uh, and because nothing with Microsoft ever really works perfectly or all that well <laughs> or predictably, uh, even though they all, everything downloaded, it didn't complete the file decryption, basically, no, uh, for no. the downloaded file no. before it left. And once I connected to the internet again it, in an airport, it restarted the downloads no. of these, like, multi-gig uh, shows and, and videos. The only thing that downloaded was Aaron Sorkin's Steve Jobs. Oh, okay. <laughs> How and so I watched it on the flight out to L.A., and I watched it once on the way back. <sighs> yeah. How was that? I may need help, you guys. Oh, buddy. Because I really liked it. Oh, pal. Like, I, like, like, and I, I knew and this I, was going to happen. Danielle, he's lost to us. He's lost. He's gone. So the, the thing is, part of it, like, part of it, I just, I just love the, just the way the movie's put together with the three different eras being, like, presented, di like, with different uh, film. Uh, basically different. They're, they're shot differently. Uh, they're, they're colored differently. Um, they're, they're, they're scored differently. I, I really love those touches, but 
I mean, I just love, like, damn it, like, I just love, like, nobody writes privileged people confrontations <laughs> like Aaron Sorkin. Uh, it just, oh my god, if you want, like, two hyper-opinionated rich people just, like, yelling at each other cleverly across a room, like, Sorkin is your guy, and I, you know what, I, I am buying what he's selling. Now, the weird thing is... I watched that movie twice. I actually have no idea what we're supposed to make of Steve Jobs by the end of that movie. Because he's objectively terrible for most of the movie. And even at the end, like, what's he really done? He still basically alienated most of the people he's encountered on that last day. And then all he manages is kind of a, a, a grudging reconciliation with his daughter. But I just, I found it a really, like, there's something I really love about this movie and i don't understand it and i'm kind of helpless to control it i think that's okay yeah you know i i feel like we all have the things that that are our sort of gotcha right in in movies or games or Mm -hmm. whatever you know you know i'll be totally honest like if there's a movie about like a a very attractive queer woman and she's not written to be a stereotype it could be the worst crappiest just piece of shit and i will probably still enjoy it right. on on some level there there are just those things if if you really truly love sorkin dialogue i think it's okay that you liked this movie <laughs> am i alone in my like of this movie though that's that's my i haven't question. seen it you might be. i haven't seen it so I, I will withhold judgment i am i am back and forth on sorkin i kind of like grew up <laughs> on sports night um and so, which might actually still be the best. Thing I, he's it, done. I, I propose it is. I propose it is the best thing he's done. Um, <laughs> whereas, like as I get older and as he gets older, I move away from him more and more. Uh, but I will let you have your Sorkin, if only so I can have my <laughs> anime and all of my other bullshit. So <laughs> <laughs> it's all fair all around. That's true. Um, I actually, wow, this is a very. Uh, unusual thing but i have watched three movies that i really enjoyed and they are all so different so i will i will pick one for today and potentially talk about the others uh, at a later date um but these are all movies i watched this weekend i saw the witch uh this weekend and i thought it was just a fantastic wonderful terrifying uh little piece of of sort of new england folktale uh there's, there's got to be another term, maybe a tall tale, fairy tale, folk tale, uh, whatever, whatever you would have it as. Um, it's a horror movie about a family that are sort of kicked out of the plantation in Massachusetts or New Hampshire or, or you know, wherever, a New Englandy place, uh, because the father is, is you know, too into his own uh, version of religion, and so they have to sort of fend for themselves on a little tiny homestead. And Which is there practically is, how Rhode Island was founded. Pretty much, yeah. Uh, Roger Williams was like, eh, I'm done with this. And then he <laughs> went down to Rhode Island and formed a whole state, which would be the most wonderful little weird place in America. Anyway, uh, <laughs> and, and of course, there is a terrifying uh, thing in the woods that is wreaking havoc on this family. And, you know, it's it's one of those movies where it's very spare in sort of its explicit storytelling content, but it says many, many volumes about gender and sex and religion and sexuality and and so many other things with what it's, you know, sort of saying uh, in its subtext. And it was beautiful and terrifying. And I was sort of clutching my girlfriend the whole time. Um, And it is not even a terribly um, 
you know, it's not a movie full of jump scares or anything, maybe a couple, but it really is just more a really wonderful mood piece uh, that just speaks so much to just a sense of dread and <laughs> evil and, and this sort of lurking horror that's always around the corner. And it, man, even, even just sort of, I, I love horror movies and I'm a New Englander. So of course I was also going to be into the whole, you know, very New Englandy, but New England in the, you know, 1640 is not New England that, that I knew, but the New England that I used to see when I was, a little kid growing up we would go to you know sort of living museums and see how people live how the pilgrims lived and that sort of thing and it it really is like what if the worst thing on earth happened to some of these pilgrims mm -hmm. here you go uh great great little movie um little i guess intimate movie i suppose i'm seeing it on but thursday yeah. and i'm very excited oh, i saw it at the nighthawk austin Ooh. and that was also the best experience Ooh. ever yeah that sounds about it's right a, it, Nighthawk is a little tiny theater uh, that serves you really good food and drinks while you watch your movie. So it's a little bit like an Alamo Draft House, but it, even more funky and fun. Mm -hmm. They they actually did before the presentation. They do like sort of a package of trailers and scenes that are sort of from other movies mm -hmm. that are that have to do with what you're watching. So I, I watched you know like an hour of scenes from cult movies like 60s you know roger corman style movies about witches and stuff like that it nice. was phenomenal it was almost as good as the movie itself just the whole experience so i'm always a little skeptical yeah. of those uh the the sort of like eat-in movie theaters because i'm always worried like <laughs> you know when i want like when i'm really into a, like a uh, a piece of cinema i'm not sure i want the sound of like 20 people like chowing down on hoagies <laughs> to be like the accompaniment to that experience sure yeah they're very very good about noise management uh in in you know there were a couple of people who were sort of loud in our yeah. row and they were asked to be quieter so it was very like they took it seriously i guess they, they sort of knew like this is where the cinephiles go so <laughs> you need to yeah. be quiet with your eating <laughs> so God. it's pretty cool yeah I, I i also saw deadpool and i also saw a documentary but i will i will talk about those at a on a later idle weekend uh so i think with that it's time for us to head out and enjoy our weekends austin I want to thank you so, so much for being here, making time to come over and chat about cyberpunk issues with us. Anytime. Literally anytime. No, this has been great. Thank you so much for having me on. Awesome. Thank you. And you are welcome to come back at any time. I, I always want to talk about cyberpunk. <laughs> you never. Great. Never. There's, oh, there's so much more oh, to Austin than cyberpunk. There is. Have, I know. Like, I have know. We really, have you heard him on Foucault? <laughs> yes. I don't know that that's different than me, than me on cyberpunk. I think I, get, I, think I can overlap <laughs> those things. I wrote a, I yeah, wrote a, I wrote a uh, uh, an essay during my, my PhD work um, that was about Foucault and Freud and cyberpunk, actually. That, that opened oh with, there's a line in Freud that says, um, uh, 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 Man is, oh God, he, he calls man, men like prosthetic, or men with all their tools are like a sort of prosthetic God. Uh, oh my and God. like how we're struggling to come to terms with the fact that technology can, can totally screw us over. Um, it's great. So I want to read that. I'll, I'll dig it up for you. <laughs> that would be, that would be amazing. Thank you. Seriously. Thank you again. Really appreciate you coming. Anytime. On. This episode of Idle Weekend was produced by Chris Remo and hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show at idleweekend.net and send us questions for our weekend correspondence at questions at idleweekend.net. We get wonderful, lovely letters. Uh, you feel free if you are angry with my opinions on The Witness to also keep sending letters if you feel the need to, but, you know, don't hurt yourself if you don't. Uh, and to keep up with the latest from us, follow us on Twitter at Idle Weekend. For Rob Zachney and our guest, Austin Walker, this is Danielle Riendo wishing you the finest of Idle Weekends. Mm -hmm.
Oh, that was a blast. That was great. Oh, that was so much fun, Austin. Thank you, Thank you, for you me so on. much. I'm just kicking myself. I talked about the wrong movie. Wait, wh- I just saw Zodiac, and it was awesome. And I want to talk about Zodiac. There will Have be- you guys seen Zodiac? 